0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to The Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace, and success. I'm Ashley Mountight. This time, career and class. Because even if
1: we don't talk about it. It absolutely is clearly a part of how people think about themselves, how people understand each other, and as our study showed, how people get ahead or don't.
0: And having a different background from everyone else at work can leave you feeling isolated. The people that I deal
2: with now, they probably have never met anyone from where I grew up. They probably live their whole lives and they would never meet anybody like I
0: was when I was a
2: young child.
0: Coming up, you can move up the socioeconomic ladder, especially with a good education. But what's it like when your career and your background don't match? Julie O'Hare works for an adult education program at a university in the American Midwest. She wrote to me a couple of months ago and she said, have you ever thought about doing a show on being in the professional world when you come from a working class background? She said a lot of her colleagues seem to have a toolkit for the workplace that she didn't because of her upbringing.
3: My mother was a teacher at a, a Catholic school and my dad worked for a construction company. And most of the people um, in the in the area that I grew up in in the Midwest were either police officers or firemen.
0: The women were crossing guards, teachers, nurses, all they pieced together part-time jobs around looking after their kids. When Julie's mother retired, she was earning less than thirty thousand dollars a year. But Julie and her siblings were able to go to college, and when she got there, she found herself surrounded by students who had their own cars credit cards.
3: I had to work my entire time at university and that was when I realized all of kind of the things you miss out of in the college experience when you have to work. I could not take an unpaid internship. I could not spend an extended period of time
0: volunteering. Before we go on, I want to dial back to what you said about how you grew up because a lot of people, I think, would say that teaching, nursing, being a firefighter or a cop, that those were very, those were middle-class professions.
3: I definitely understand that perspective. I guess I mean more culturally, aside from nurses, I guess, but most firefighters who I knew, um, police officers, didn't have college degrees. My mom had a degree from a teaching college. My dad didn't have a college degree. He had attended some college What I mean more is I didn't know anyone who had developed a profession. I didn't know any lawyers, doctors, university professors. I didn't know anyone who really was an accountant, people who had gone to school for a specific profession outside of a vocation.
0: And she says not coming from that world left her with a knowledge gap. She says she just didn't realise until she'd been in academia for a while that there was so much invisible stuff involved in having a career. Take the idea of professional development.
3: Things that are part of your job or um, perhaps a better way of talking about it would be networking. It took me a very long time to understand what networking is and why you would do it. And I think part of that was culturally growing up. You know, if someone is a police officer, you just apply to be a police officer.
0: There was none of this business of courting people over drinks in a cacophonous hotel conference room. It took a question from her boss one day to make her realize she was missing something.
3: My um, supervisor and I were at a conference and we had been there for a couple days. And he looked at me and he said, what type of connections are you making? And I had no idea what he was talking about. And I thought, oh, we're just all here kind of talking about that we all do the same type of higher education work. It didn't make sense to me to think like, oh, these people are people who have been in my profession for a long time. And I could very much learn things from them in the workplace.
0: Like a lot of people, she recoiled from the idea of networking at first.
3: It feels very much like self-promotion and it and feel it. The reason that I say that there's a connection to class is that I think when I was much younger, perhaps in high school or early days in college, I would have thought that you're sucking up to someone, that you're trying to impress them. And that went against every cultural norm that I knew. And I've always thought that was related to class. Maybe it's an American thing or maybe it's a universal thing. But now I realize that it's not trying to impress someone, is just trying to get them to get invite them into your pro- professional life. But, you know, trying to build a vocabulary for your work skills, for your professional goals. Those are things that I think take time for everyone. But if you did not know about that type of vocabulary, then try just trying to define everything, I think, is much more difficult.
0: Sometimes she feels her vocabulary is off. She says she didn't know talking about money, or the lack of it, wasn't done in academic circles. But whenever she's brought money up, she says people go quiet. She doesn't do it anymore. There are still work occasions when she squirms.
3: If it is, you know, a, a professional happy hour, a professional networking event that has a social piece to it, um, I am very uncomfortable in those situations because I think that... <sighs> For example, a few months ago, I was out with some faculty members at the university, and I was the only staff person there, and politics came up, and I made a comment about how my my brother and both my, my brother and my brother-in-law, who are in two different trade unions, how those unions were having disagreements about which presidential candidate to to back. And the, the faculty member who I was talking to said, oh, are they in a teacher's union? And I said, no, uh, you know, one is, a, is an insulator, the other is an, a building engineer. And she's, she said, oh, I've never met someone whose union was not a teacher's union.
0: Julie had grown up with men in unions, men who worked with their hands. And her colleague didn't know anyone who did that kind of thing. She could feel this weird imposter syndrome swimming over her. That feeling of not belonging, of not being quite up to par. I mean, like, did she seem amused, bemused? Were you? Ha, ha, I'm just curious. I wonder how she felt versus how you felt. I don't know. I mean, I, this is
3: this is another, I think, professional difference. Um, she seemed very good at kind of like keeping it a low emotional conversation, whereas I wanted to say, "How do you not know anyone in a union?" <laughs> And I kind of was much more interested in her experience, but um, she didn't, she just seemed very surprised, like, oh, that's so interesting that you would know someone like that. And I thought, oh, I think it's interesting that I know all of these people who are, who have PhDs now.
0: She's 32 now, and she says she is getting more comfortable in this rarefied world. And she feels lucky to have had such a good education herself, including graduate school, At the moment, a quarter of her salary goes to paying off her student loans, but she says it could be worse. My next guest has a PhD himself. Daniel Laurison is a professor of sociology at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. Before that, he spent three years at the London School of Economics, doing research on class and inequality in the UK. And I couldn't do a show about class without talking about Britain. First of all, before we talk about the study you did with Sam Friedman, you, you are an American and you plunged into British society. And to what extent do you think Britain is still a place where class matters?
1: Oh, I think it absolutely matters in Britain. It matters in the US as well. People say it's less obvious or less overt here. And I think that's true. But it absolutely is clearly a part of how people think about themselves, how people understand each other, and, as our study showed, how people get ahead or don't.
0: Daniel and his LSE colleague Sam Friedman did this study on people in high-status professions like law, medicine and finance, and they looked at their backgrounds.
1: We were interested in the question of how much class origin matters for the success of people who have been what sociologists call upwardly socially mobile. I think other people use that term, too. But, um, you know, for people who've gotten into sort of high status professional or managerial jobs, but who come from working class backgrounds, are they at any disadvantage? Or, you know, once they enter those professions, are they does sort of class go away? They just like everybody else.
0: What they found suggests class doesn't entirely go away. They examined labour force data that showed what these high-status employees' parents did for a living back when the employees themselves were 14. They used that information to determine class origin. Then they looked at what these employees were earning now as adult lawyers, doctors and so on.
1: There's about a 17% difference between working class origin people and privileged origin people who are in these top jobs, when you control for everything that you can control for in these models, that difference gets smaller, but it's still about 9 or 10% in annual earnings. So people who
0: now worked in high-status jobs but had grown up with less privileged backgrounds, they were earning less than their peers who'd grown up with professional parents. Or as a British newspaper put it when the research was published last year, it pays to be posh at work. There's a gender piece to this too. And remember, long-range upwardly mobile means a person from a household where the parents did low-skilled jobs.
1: If you just look at women versus women and men versus men, the gaps were about the same. However, if you look at long-range upwardly mobile women as compared to men from privileged backgrounds, then the gap is about twice as big, right? Um, Because they have both a gender pay gap and a class origin pay gap.
0: So what Daniel and his co-author call the class ceiling seems to be that bit higher for women. But what about America? He says no one's done an identical study here, but similar studies and books have come to similar conclusions. What do you think the difference or differences are between a class or attitudes to class in the U.S. versus the U.K.?
1: I think the big difference is that it's, it's subtler here in the U.S., we read people's class when we interact with them, but I think that we're less aware that we're doing it and we're less explicit about it with each other and with ourselves. So, you know, in the UK, as you well know, you know an awful lot about someone the moment they open their mouth based on their accent. Their accents tie people to regions they tie, and they, to some fairly large extent, as I understand it, tie people to class origins as well. So in the US, it's not quite so cut and dried, you know, America, more or less from its founding, has had a myth of being a pure meritocracy where class doesn't matter at all, and that comes from you know we, you know we got here and nobody was a noble, so there was some difference in uh, in how much class there was, but there's still always been differences in the amount of economic resources people have and the cultures that they have and all of these things that come together to advantage people or disadvantage people.
0: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Add race, and class acquires another layer of complexity. Denise McKenzie is a patent lawyer at an international law firm. She's based in L.A. She's in her 50s now, and she's been a lawyer for about 20 years. She grew up in Los Angeles, too, but in very different circumstances from most of her colleagues. Denise has a packed schedule, so I got her on the phone between meetings. I am the first
2: person in my family to go to college. My mom, actually, she was a teenage mom. She had her first child at 15, and she had me at 17. And my dad, he um, he was a technician. He actually he worked with engineers. And so when I was little, I mean as young as I can remember, his big thing was getting me into math and science, and he wanted me to be a scientist or an engineer because those are the people that he worked with and the people that he admired. So when I was little, he would actually make flashcards for me to teach me my math facts.
0: She worked hard, did well at school, and got into UCLA. She commuted an hour and a half each way to the university and back and held a job as a secretary on top of her studies. She majored in mathematics and electrical engineering. And I ended up working at Hughes Aircraft as an engineer in their missile design group. Hughes Aircraft was a big defense contractor. Denise had met her dad's expectations, and her own. She was now an engineer. From the get-go, when you began in your first career, were there feelings of discomfort? I mean, how did it go?
2: Well, my feelings of discomfort actually started when I went to UCLA. I went to, sc- I went to inner-city school, and that school didn't really prepare me for... Um, what I was getting into at UCLA, especially not for math and science. And so when I went to UCLA, I was sitting in my calculus class. And at that time, it was, you know, the first introduction to calculus. It was between 350 and 400 students in that class. And I was so confused in that class, even though at my high school, I was the top person at my high school. I was I had done everything in my high school. I was just, you know, I was... um You know, in student council, I was top grades, I was a cheerleader. I was everything at that school I was. I was like one of the best people. And then when I went to UCLA and I was sitting in my calculus class, I was so confused, I didn't even know what was going on. I didn't even know how to ask a question. That's how confused I was. So I felt like a total failure.
0: She was overwhelmed. But UCLA offered resources to students from less privileged backgrounds. They put her in touch with a tutor,
2: I get a tutor in every single class, and I work, you know, day and night. And actually, I didn't do that well. Like my first quarter, I, I did very poorly. And the school, actually, they sent me a letter and they said, you know, you're going to have to get your grades up or you're not going to be able to go here. And I was just, I was devastated because from my home, from my school, I was like this
0: best person who was supposed to be successful. And I just really was not prepared. But she kept at it, and the work did eventually pay off. She graduated and landed that engineering job. Still, she often felt ill at ease at work. A, she was an African-American woman among many white and Asian men. She says they really didn't know how to talk to her. But the other thing was, she didn't know how to navigate this new environment. Take her first performance reviews.
2: It was just very awkward. I mean, I've I just didn't know how to handle myself. I didn't know how to, you know, I should have been selling myself, telling them all the stuff that I achieved. And I, I didn't do that. I didn't do any of that.
0: Because she didn't know she was supposed to. Now, it didn't help that the person reviewing her was a man who wouldn't even look her in the eye and that she already felt like the odd one out. I just look very different. You know, there's no one there like
2: me. So when people meet me, that's just, I mean, and that, you know, that's even now, <laughs> to, to be quite frank. When people meet me, they're just kind of shocked.
0: And for Denise, this is where it all gets mixed up. Is she being judged on her gender, her background, her race, or all three? She is a true minority in her current workplace, too. A black woman among many white men in a highly specialised area of law she says few lawyers have her background in engineering technology. But some people can't seem to get past the surface. She tells the story of one encounter. She was meeting with another lawyer about a case. He was sitting opposite her, and she started to feel self-conscious. He kept
2: staring at me, and I, and I was thinking, guys, is, is something wrong with my clothing? You know, I just felt very odd because he was staring at me. And he said, um, the judge in our case, she's just like you. And I didn't, I didn't know what he meant. I said, well, what is, she, is she an engineer and a lawyer? He goes, no, she's just like you in every way. I was like, well, what, what do you mean? He said, he said she's black. And, and I think if, um, if we put you on the case, maybe you could talk to her because, you know, she doesn't really understand technology. And I was just so shocked that he, that he said that. And he goes, you know, and she's, she's, she's in Oakland, which is, you know, like an inner city area in California. And I was so shocked that he said this because he was not saying it in a mean way. He's not a mean person. This is just what he was thinking. And, you know, we were talking about very complex technical matters, and I realized that he wasn't really listening to what I was saying about the technology. He was focused on what I looked like Mm. and who I was, you know, an African-American woman. I really didn't know that, you know, people focus on that first and almost solely. And what did you say in
0: response?
2: Well, what I said to him is, I you know, most judges, whether they're African American or not, don't understand technology. And so she's just like every other judge. You know, she doesn't need me to explain something to her. And, and you know, that's what I said to him
0: he laughed, perhaps nervously. She's not sure if he got it. And the incident made her feel so isolated. Again. She says in her world of corporate law, virtually everyone she comes into contact with has parents who were white professionals. Some of them, the parents were
2: lawyers, you know, doctors, just, and not just professionals, highly paid professionals. You know, a lot of them had gone to private high schools and just had a different type of upbringing than I had had. They had traveled the world more than I had. And so in that situation, when you're having a conversation, just just a regular informal conversation, I felt excluded. Not necessarily that they were intentionally excluding me, but because I couldn't contribute to the conversation, if that makes sense.
1: Daniel
0: Lorison says that experience is common.
1: Sam Friedman, who's my co-author on a lot of these studies, has done a lot of research showing how much people feel out of place when they have been long range, upwardly mobile and how sort of painful that can be for people, even if they're simultaneously also happy with the job that they've got and the career that they've had and the opportunities they're able to give to their children. A big part of what happens when people have a lot of social mobility is they end up in places that don't feel comfortable to them, that they're not where the norms are different from what they're used to, where the things people chat about are different. And it's not through any fault of theirs. It's just that the culture is so dominated by people from privileged backgrounds who tend to have somewhat their own culture.
2: The people that I deal with now, they probably have never met anyone from where I grew up. They probably lived their whole lives and they would never meet anybody like I was when I was a young child. I myself only see people like that when I look at look at my family, and it's because that you know I work a lot, and the world that I I'm in, it, it's like it's parallel to where I grew up. It just doesn't cross. How does that feel? Oh, it's, it, it, well, it's 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 a um it's not a good feeling because I often feel like I um you know I feel like an outsider. I, feel, I mean I feel like an outsider for a variety of reasons. You know. A lot because I'm African-American, I'm a woman, and I'm working in an all-white, you know, male career. But then also from the people I grew up with as well, because I'm different now, I'm different than them. And, you know, we've had completely different experiences. And really, it's hard to relate, right? I mean, my struggles, if I if I talk about my struggles, they seem like nothing compared to someone who maybe can't put food on the table,
0: Right it can be difficult to bridge that gap. She is close to her family, though, despite how different their lives are now. She says her parents have always been eager to understand her new world, even if it does seem far removed from theirs, and they've always supported her. Denise met her husband back at UCLA. She says their daughter is having a totally different experience than she did growing up. And Denise says that's wonderful, but it's also been unsettling sometimes. My daughter...
2: She goes to private schools, and so when I was looking for schools for her to go to when she was in kindergarten, and we went to one of the schools, and they're very expensive, and I went through the interview, and they they wanted my daughter. You know, they wanted my daughter. She's, you know, she's bright, whatever, and I cried after that meeting because I thought of all the little kids that go to the schools like I went to, and I just thought, how could they even compete in this world? If if you have kids that go to these schools that cost like twenty five thousand dollars a year for kindergarten, I mean that's like crazy. And then you have kids in the, in the in the inner city who they don't even have the um, you know the books and pencils and desks they need. How can they compete? Like when it's time to go to college, I mean how are they going to get into the top schools? And you know what? Most of them don't. And just for me, just that. Realization because I'd never seen that where my daughter went to school I didn't even know that existed.
0: Her daughter's now in college studying computer science. Denise is thrilled things will be easier for her as she transitions to the professional world. Because when she looks back at her own trajectory, she says she thinks of how difficult it was, and still is.
2: I mean, this will sound funny, but I feel like I wouldn't I wouldn't advise it. <laughs> Path that I was on, I just, I just wouldn't advise it. it, it it's not a, it's, um, it's, it, it's uphill, and you just have to, you know, you have moments of pleasure that you have to really enjoy and appreciate, but it's grueling. But you did it. Yeah, somehow. I just, <laughs> the grace of God. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I just think it's, um, it's so unfair. It's such an uneven playing field. People don't, like when they're evaluating you, when they look at you, they don't look at all that. They just think that everybody has the same opportunity and everybody doesn't. To get where I am, I worked day, night, weekends, holidays, vacations, and birthdays. My daughter, when she was little, she didn't even know when her birthday was because I would have to celebrate her birthday when I had a free moment. But I felt like I had to work like that just to sustain myself.
0: You know what you said about, um, you know, lack of opportunity and how can kids in inner city schools possibly ever get to the same level as kids that went to a school like your daughters? Was it your dad? I mean, because obviously you made this transition and you pointed out that a lot of other people don't. Was it your dad and his coaching and your own intelligence and drive, like a combination of those things? Yeah, I
2: think it was my family. I think it was my dad. He was, like, drilling me with the math facts or whatever, but he also gave me the confidence that I could be like a scientist or engineer, right? Because, you, I mean, a lot of women have, like, math phobia, and it's a whole big thing right now about girls in math and all that kind of stuff. Well, my dad, before it was even popular, he was like, this is what you're going to do. So I never, ever doubted that I could do it. And then my family, like even even my grandmother, okay, because I told you my mother was 15, and we lived next door to my grandmother – My whole family, like, just cheered for me. And and everything I did, it was just like, oh my gosh, you know, she's going to be the one that makes it. So I really think it was my family.
0: She says her own perseverance played its part too, especially when it looked like she might get kicked out of UCLA because she couldn't keep up. And even though she said she wouldn't advise it, this journey through socioeconomic layers... By the end of our conversation she'd remembered something a speaker at her high school had told the class back in the late 70s. This is all he said.
2: He just said, "Never, never, never give up." And I think that's what I would say. I know that's that's simple, but that's really it. Just just don't give up. And mm. I think if you if you don't give up, you might not reach your goal, but you'll be much better off than you were before you tried.
0: Denise McKenzie. Thanks to her, Julie O'Hare and Daniel Laurison for being my guests on this show. If you have something to say about the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me via the website or post your comment under this episode or on the show's Facebook page. That's the broad experience for this time. If you're not already a subscriber, please sign up on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. You will never miss an episode again. And tell your friends and colleagues about the show too. I'm Ashley milne Thanks for listening.